Our sermon this morning is from Daniel chapter 6. Turn to Daniel 6 in your, in your Bibles. It's a passage that we're all likely familiar with. It's probably one of the more uh, famous passages in all of Scripture. Um, certainly, certainly probably the most famous passage in the book of Daniel. Daniel in the lion's den. I think, um, I think this story is in every children's Bible I've ever uh, read or seen or come across. Right, you got Noah and the ark. You've got uh, Jonah and the whale. And you got Dan- so it's always a two-syllable name and then an animal, right? Noah and then and then uh, Daniel and the and the lions lions den. So uh, Daniel chapter six, Daniel and the lions den. This kind of brings closure to the first half of the book of Daniel. So kind of divide the book of Daniel into two sections, uh, chapters 1 through 6, kind of chronicle, detail, describe um, Daniel and his uh, you know, companions in the royal courts uh, in exile, in, in Babylon and then later in Persia, Medo-Persia. Um, and so that's Daniel 1 through 6. It's kind of a narrative, right? You see there's characters. Um, and then Daniel 7 through 12, which we'll get into next week, gets a little weird. It's, it's almost like Daniel 7 through 12 is almost like the Old Testament version of the book of Revelation. So it's weird, and it's like visions, and it's like animals, and all kinds of, of stuff that you're, you're not, not quite sure what it means, so you kind of make your best guess as to what it, what it means. Daniel 7 through 12 are all visions of Daniel. So 1 through 6 is him describing things that he was you know, experiencing in the real world. 7 through 12 is him describing dreams that he had, visions that he had from God, and then trying to interpret them and help the reader interpret them. So this is the last passage in the first half of the book, and we'll start the second half um, next week. Now, uh, Daniel uh, in the lion's den, again, probably all heard it, probably all read it, we're probably all familiar with it. My hope, though, is that we can see it, read it, experience it, savor it, with fresh eyes, right? Almost as if, as if we're reading it for the, for the first time so that we can see, you know, the, the glory of God in it and see, um, you know, even uh, the, the, the sufficiency of the person and work of Jesus in it and see uh, the, the beauty of the gospel in it. So I'm going to pray and then we're just going to work our way through uh, Daniel chapter 6 together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the incredible gift um, of your word. Lord, we thank you that you have uh, inspired the writing of your word. We thank you that you have sovereignly preserved um, your word through the centuries to see that it's uh, transmitted to, to us even here today. And Lord, we pray that you would illumine our hearts to your word this morning so that we can see you and, and be filled with your um, Holy Spirit as we, as we encounter you in your, your word. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so we've seen Daniel in the royal courts, you know, uh, meat versus vegetables. We saw interpreting dreams, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Um, we saw Daniel, um, let's see, uh, yeah, we saw the humbling of Nebuchadnezzar. We saw uh, Daniel um, in, interpreting the writing on the wall with Belshazzar. We've come, come a long way. Chapter 6, verse 1, it says, It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps would, should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. So we've got a new king now. In fact, um, yeah, new king of a new, last, last time we saw it, it was Belshazzar, the king of Babylon. Now we've got King Darius uh, of uh, the Medo-Persian Empire. Um, and so new king, new administration, um, but similar kind of visions, similar kind of responsibilities. Every king uh, in the ancient world had, had uh, a bunch of different streams of revenue, income streams coming in, right? They had taxation, <coughs> you know, taxing their own people, trade, depending on what kind of natural resources they had and the surrounding nations had. They had tribute, right, which is where you'd go to other nations and say, you have to give me this much money every month, and if you do, I'll uh, either protect you from other nations if they attack, 
or maybe, or maybe I just won't attack you and, and, and conquer you, that kind of, that kind of thing. Um, and so all kinds of, all kinds of different, uh, streams of revenue. And so the king says, I need to put, uh, um, you know, we're, we're too many hands are in the cookie jar. We're losing money. So I'm going to, I'm going to set 120 guys to each oversee and kind of watch every dollar from the moment it leaves my customer or citizen's hands until it gets to the palace. 120 guys to oversee that, make sure that there's no theft or, or loss. And, and then I've got three guys in particular uh, that are going to oversee, presumably each one uh, oversee about 40 of, of those guys. Uh, so he's got this system in place with delegation to try to make sure that all of the money, or at least as much as possible, ends up in his, in his hands. Then uh, the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint Wait, I'm sorry. Uh, then, then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him in the kingdom, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So we've got 120 guys, three guys overseeing them. Daniel's one of those three, and then Daniel kind of emerges as, oh, like this guy is uh, better than, like we're going to make Daniel the, the chief, like the, the prince among these three. He's going to oversee the entire thing. If we can kind of take what every, everywhere that Daniel has an area of responsibility, that place thrives. Daniel doesn't steal things. Daniel doesn't take bribes. Daniel uh, is, is excellent and competent, and he makes sure that things end up where they're supposed to go. And so I'm going to put Daniel over everything, which, of course, upsets the other guys. Right? Verse 4, the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for uh, complaint with, against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. So with these other guys, the other, three, the other two of the three and the 120... Like, in their view, it's, it's a zero-sum game, right? Uh, every dollar that Daniel makes is a dollar out of their pockets. Every, every ounce of power that Daniel accumulates is an ounce of power that they uh, would, could have had, but they no longer have. And so they hate Daniel, and they want to eliminate Daniel. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful, and no error and no fault was found in him. So Daniel, so these men want to, right, they want to fine-tooth comb, scrutinize. I'm sure he's probably skimming off the top somewhere. Maybe he, uh, you know, has a, a, you know, a, a girlfriend or an illegitimate child that no one knows about, or maybe there's some, something in his life that to be embarrassed about or something that we can expose to bring him down, to see to it that he is out of our way so that we can advance uh, in, into the space where he is currently occupying, but they can't find anything. No error was found in Daniel, because he's a man of integrity. He loves God, he trusts God, he's, he's righteous, and he's faithful, and he's upright. So they said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So we have rightly determined that we're not going, Daniel is not going to succumb to scandal. He doesn't have, he doesn't have some offshore bank account. He doesn't, right, there's nothing that we can do, no piece of leverage that we can get on him to expose him or to, to, you know, bend him to our will. This guy is morally upright and he's faithful and he acts with integrity. In fact, the only way that we're going to find any ground for complaint is if it's in connection, like the, the one thing that Daniel does Right, as far as the king is concerned, he is a model servant citizen. He does everything right. He's he's godly and faithful, and everything he does. The king, but the one thing that Daniel does is he is beholden to, like we can't get leverage by exposing, but we he we might be able to get leverage in connection with the law of his God. We know that Daniel loves God. Daniel obeys God. Daniel is faithful to the law of God. And that's a higher law for him than the, than the king. So maybe if we can contrive a scenario where Daniel has to choose between, uh, you know, doing something that will make the king happy and obeying the law of his God, then we've got him. Then we can, then we can maybe bring Daniel, Daniel down. So again, Daniel is so faithful, he acts with so much integrity that... There's literally no, like, n- there's no inroad to, to taking him down. There's nothing that they can find in his life to expose and, and to, to, you know, yeah, to embarrass him. Which is, you know, so the application, of course, for us is, does our lives 
look, do our lives look like that, right? Do we, like, if, if non-Christians around you were to look at your life, scrutinize your life, go through it with a fine-tooth comb, what, you know, what would they find? Would they find a man who, a woman who is faithful, who has integrity? Would they find error? Would they find fault? Would they find grounds for complaint? Right, the people you live with, people you work with, people that you uh, encounter driving on the road, right? Friends, family members, right? Would they, would they uh, easily find some source of embarrassment that brings disrepute upon the, the name of God and the glory of God? Or like Daniel, would they think this person, uh, by all accounts, appears to be faithful and upright? It's a good husband, loves his wife, doesn't, you know... Uh, you know, doesn't get involved with other uh, women. Good father, loves his kids, spends time with them, plays with them, disciples them. He's kind and respectful to people, even in situations where he doesn't need to be. He's generous and others-centered. He doesn't steal from the, the office, right? If people were to look at your life and, and kind of secretly go through with a fine-tooth comb to see if you are actually living up to the beliefs that you claim to, to believe, what would they find and what would they see? Because the reality is people are looking at your life like that, right? Uh, today, now, more now, more today than ever, people are, when, when someone claims to be a Christian, right, purports to be a Christian, says that they believe God, love God, people around them are looking at them, and they are trying to figure out if your life and your, if your private life aligns with your public life. Does your morality align with the beliefs that you claim to uh, espouse? That's, that's, you know, more today than ever, I, I would, would argue. And so, Daniel is exemplary for us in that this is a man who doesn't just say he believes God, but he's trustworthy, he's faithful, he acts with integrity. And when people look at him, with the intention of bringing him down, they can't find any avenue to, to do so. Verse 6, Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king, and they said, O King Darius, live forever! Right? You, Darius, you're the, you're the best. You are the coolest. You're the smartest, Right? You know, man, have you, have you kids ever like, has, ever, has ever, anyone ever like been talking, like been, been kind of being really nice to you? Maybe too nice? And you're like wondering like, I don't know, like something seems a little, something seems off about, right? Like in, here, you, you go first. You, whatever, you get the bigger cookie. I'll take the, right? And you're like, something's a little weird. Why is this person being so nice to me? And then it, you find out later like they had something that they, Right? Maybe they broke some. They broke a toy of yours, and like, they're like, "Don't tell mom and dad; I'll get in trouble." Right? You're like, "Oh, now I know why you were being so nice and trying to, you know, you were being nicer to me than you normally are." But now I realize it's because you want you want something from me, right? King Darius, live forever. You're the best. You're the coolest. All of the officials, all in all the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, the counselors, the governors, we've all agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes a petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, that person should be cast into the den of, of lions. So we don't know about you, Darius, but let us tell you the idea that we had when we were all hanging out. We all think that you're so cool and so awesome and so great that we think that you should just make a rule that says everyone needs to tell you constantly how awesome and how great you are. And if you ever hear of anyone talking about how awesome or great anyone else is other than you, then you should kill them in a really bad, really violent way. We don't know if you agree with us, but that's what we think. We think you're so awesome and you're so cool that we think a rule like that would be, uh, would be appropriate in your, in your kingdom, right? So they're like, it's very much like this is a very contrived, they're, they're, they're trying to flatter the king and trying to make him feel really good about himself and kind of butter him up and make him like them. They, they, didn't, they didn't pick some random law that the king would be indifferent to. They picked this specific law because they knew that it would be like, the king would be like, yeah, I am pretty cool. This is great. 
Right? So they go to the king. They say, make this rule. Everyone who doesn't do it throws in the den of lions. Now, O king, verse 8. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot... Read, we already have it. We've written it out. All you have to do is sign it. Right? Uh, so that it cannot be changed according to the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. So the idea was... The idea in, in the ancient world, most civilizations in the ancient world, but certainly Medo-Persia, is that the, anything that the king says, like ex-cathedral, right? like anything that the king says is infallible, it cannot ever be altered or changed. The reason why is because the king himself uh, was thought of to be divine. And, and you, know, uh, you know, like this king can't say anything that is wrong, and so therefore, anything that he says and anything that he signs into law cannot be wrong. So it can never be changed. It's like, if you, like today we would call someone a spoiled brat, right? If they're just always like treated really well and their parents and everyone around them, their whole life always tells them that they're right and they always get whatever they want. Well, the king in the ancient world was that times a thousand, times infinity, Right? I mean, the king, you could literally, if you're a child in the ancient world, you, they could be teaching you math and they could ask you, what's two plus two? And you could wrongly say, two plus two equals five. And then they'd be like, well, like, that's just what it is now. Like, we, if we say he's wrong, he'll, he's sick, he's five years old, right? He's eight years old. But if we say he's wrong, he'll have us killed. So from now on, until this king is assassinated, uh, two plus two equals five. So change all the money, change all the signs, speed limits, uh, you know, change all of the math textbooks. From now on, as long as this king reigns, two plus two equals five, and we're just going to have to live in that world because we can't tell the king that he is wrong, right? That's literally how, it's so like, if you live in that, if you're that guy, and that's how people treat you for your entire life, at some point you start to believe your own press, and you start to think, yeah, I guess I am, man, I am always right. Like, I thought I was wrong on that one, but... They're all telling me I'm right, and so I guess I'm right, and I guess I'm always right. Come to think of it, I guess I can never be wrong ever. I guess everything that I ever say is always perfectly right and can never be wrong. Everything that I say can, is, is always right. It can never be changed. It can never be fixed. It can never be altered. It stands forever. It cannot be repealed. That's kind of the, the, the idea, right? I am perpetually always right. Nothing I say can be changed. Nothing needs to be changed because nothing could ever be wrong. Which we hear and we're like, that's so silly and so stupid. But, I mean, I don't know. Like, I'm preaching to myself here. When's the last time you had a disagreement with someone and the conversation ended, right? debate, an argument, whatever, and the conversation ended with you saying, you know what? You've convinced me. You're right and I'm wrong. When's the last time your spouse heard you say, you're right and I'm wrong, you're right and I'm wrong, I, I yeah, I, I was wrong there, right, Within, with no nuance, with no caveat, with no disclaimer, just you're right and I'm wrong and I've changed my mind and I now agree with what you said despite coming into this conversation, I thought the exact opposite. Because that's, that's not easy to come by for me. Like, I, I, you know, we read this about King Darius, and we think, oh, that's so absurd and so silly. But it's not easy to admit that you're wrong. It's not easy to change your mind. It's not easy to say, I was wrong, and, and you were right, and so now I'm going to adopt your right. You know, I mean, any theology, politics, you know, what we're going to have for dinner, like, I don't know, what's the best route to get to that, whatever, right, whatever it is, it's not easy to say, you were right, and I was wrong, and now I'm changing my mind, and I'm going to think from, I'm, from now on, I'm going to think what you think instead of what I thought, and so, it sounds absurd, what, what this, this idea that whatever the king says can never be changed no matter what, and yet, maybe the very same sinful, prideful heart posture that was kind of residing at the foundation of that rule, that culture, maybe is more familiar to us than we care to admit. So, sign the documents so that it can't be changed according to the law, which cannot be revoked, and the king Darius signed the document and injunction. So he says, this sounds good, right? You think I should make a law saying how awesome I am 
It just so happens I agree that I am super awesome, so let's make that a law. Verse 10, then when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he still went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber toward Jerusalem, and he got down, uh, he got down on his knees and three times a day, and he prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. So Daniel says, look, I'm happy to serve the king. I'm happy to, you know, put me in charge of the satraps, put me in charge of the money. I'm happy to do it. I'm not going to steal anything. Uh, even though I know the money's probably going to stuff that I don't approve of, or even though maybe the tax rate is so onerous that maybe uh, it could be, um, you know, interpreted as exploitative or, or you know, even slavery. That's fine. Like, I'm going, I'm not going to, I'm not, there's, every hill is not a hill that I'm going to die on. I'm going to obey the king. I'm going to be a faithful servant and citizen wherever I can, up to a point. Because once I hit this point where obeying God would require me, uh, obeying the king would require me to disobey God, then I'm not going to do it. And when I don't do it, I'm not going to like, you know, make a big deal out of it, you know, form, like have a, a sit-in or a protest. I'm not going to, you know... Be, be a martyr and post about it on, right? I'm just going to faithfully, quietly, unbeknownst to anyone else, obey God instead of the king. And the consequences be what they are. If, if, if this ends up inviting uh, punishment or suffering on me, that's fine because I can't obey man rather than God, but I'm also not going to, you know, make a big show out of it and make a big deal out of it and try to make, you know, make it all about me instead of about the God that I am trying to, to serve. And so there's two there's two biblical ideas here that Daniel is walking them very well and very faithfully, one of which is um, Romans chapter 13, right? Uh, Christians should be subject to the governing authorities that are in authority over you because there aren't any authorities over you that haven't been put there, set in place by God himself. So if someone, uh, if, if the governing authority puts a law and you say, I think that law is stupid, or I, I disagree with it, or I didn't vote for the guy who passed that law, that's fine. Be that as it may, as a Christian, we still have an obligation to obey the law because that's what faithful, godly Christians do. God, right? If we're saying, I'm only going to obey the laws that I like and no other laws, then we're basically saying, I don't trust the sovereignty of God that put the governing authorities in place that put those laws there. And so Daniel, at every turn, obeys every law that he can, so much so that the king thinks, this guy's awesome. He is a, he's a law-following, good, godly citizen. He's excellent. He's upright. He has integrity. I like him, and I want to promote him. So that's one kind of uh, aspect of Christianity that we have to incorporate into our lives. Romans 13, obey the governing authorities because God is the one who put them there. The other comes from Acts chapter 5, which says that if you're put in a situation where obeying human beings means that you have to disobey God, then you have to obey God rather than men. It's more important, it's more critical, it's more crucial to obey God rather than, <coughs> rather than men. And so... If some Christian were to take Romans 13 and say, oh, that, that makes it very easy. Whatever you do, whatever you hear, just do what you're told. Just, you know, don't think, don't, uh, you know, read your Bible. Just whatever anyone in authority tells you to do, just do it. And if you get in trouble for it later, then you can just say, hey, I was just doing what I was told. So I, you can't really, I'm not accountable for those, for those actions. Right? We can't just blindly obey every authority. We have to take the mandates from said authority and we have to hold it up against Scripture hold it up against the word of God, and if the two conflict, then we obey God rather than men. So, so we don't always rebel against the governing authorities just because we don't like them or because we think it's fun or because we have a rebellious spirit, nor do we always obey the authorities, but we, we kind of, as a wise, discerning, cautious Christian, <coughs> we obey anywhere and everywhere that we can until obedience means disobeying God, and then we obey God rather than, rather than men, which is exactly what uh, Daniel does. He's humble. He submits to the authorities that are in place over him, like Romans 13 says, but he's also faithful and bold, and he obeys God rather than men, like Acts chapter 5 says. Verse 11. Then these men came by agreement, and they found Daniel making petition and plea before, so they knew what they knew. They, they, like, they made the law on purpose. They knew exactly what, they'd been like, 
surveilling him. So they knew this guy prays three times a day. Here's where he goes to pray. Here's what he says when he prays. Here's how long it takes. They, they were the first time that Daniel went to go pray. They were right there waiting, watching so that they could, could bust him for breaking the law of God. And then they came near and they said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not... <coughs> Did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? As if they didn't know, right? This all, presumably this all happens in a span of like hours or, you know, maybe a day. So like they, they knew exactly what the petition or what, yeah, what the injunction said. They're the ones who wrote it, presumably, uh, and the king just signed it. So they said, oh, they're tattling on him. Didn't you say that you're not allowed to do such and such? And the king answers, yeah, this thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. So yes, I did sign that law. And then verse 13, then they answered and they said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction that you have signed, but he makes his petition three times a day. So this is the big reveal, right? Dun, dun, dun. Right? They're like, it's like, we, you said, like, you're, we're, we trapped you. You said it's this. You signed it. It can't be changed. Daniel did this. And so now, you have to uh, s- send Daniel to the lion's den. In verse 14, the king, when he heard these words, uh, when he heard these words, was much distressed, and he set his mind to deliver Daniel. So, so the king, let's flip to the next slide, Zeke. Uh, the king is... Uh, he actually likes Daniel, right? The king uh, is not, he's not indifferent to the fact that Daniel is going to be thrown to the lion's den. It says that he labored until the sun went down to try and rescue him. So the king really cares about Daniel, likes him, doesn't want Daniel to be punished, and he's actually kind of distressed about the idea that he will be. He's trying to find a loophole. He's getting lawyers, you know, to like, hey, see if you can find some way for me to not have to throw Daniel. Find some sort of exception clause that I can, that I can do. He labors until the sun goes down. Verse 15, then these men came by agreement to the king and they said to him, no, O king, that it's the law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be, right? They're just like, they're like children bragging, right? We, you know, you know you're not allowed to change the law, so don't, I hope you're not thinking about doing that because that's not allowed. Everything, you sign the law, it can't be changed, and so now you, like, you have to throw Daniel into the, the den of, of lions. So they're very proud of themselves. The king is very much distressed. And Daniel, similar to how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did in chapter 3, is on his way to what uh, presumably is going to be a terrible, painful death. Verse 16, the king commanded and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of, of lions. So, um, it's pretty much an inevitability at this point. The king declared, may your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. Right? Uh, you know, again, the text is very clear that, that the king is on Daniel's side. He is only enforcing this law because he can't be changed. If he could change it, he would. And he's in distress about it. He's trying to find a loophole, but he can't. He's hoping that, that Daniel's God will deliver him. I don't know who your God is, but obviously you do. And so maybe you, you're so faithful in praying to him, maybe he will. Right? It's very clear that Darius, his intentions with regards to Daniel are very good. He wants good for Daniel. He wants Daniel to thrive. He doesn't want to do anything that would hurt or harm Daniel. But, you know, but good intentions in and of themselves are not, don't do much at all, frankly. Right? There's like, what's the phrase? Uh, Exactly. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. So, you know, that's not in the Bible. So, you know. Take it with a grain of salt, but it's true in this case, right? Like, the king has good intentions. His intentions are for Daniel to thrive and to be promoted and to take on more and more power and more authority because that's going to make him the king. It's going to enrich him and it's going to serve him and it's going to be good for, for Daniel. So, but intentions in and of themselves uh, don't do much. Intentions, if you, good intentions toward your neighbor that are never acted upon, right? 
My neighbor has this particular need. I would lo- Man, it would be great if someone would meet that need. I would love it if I was the guy who would, would meet that, that need. Right? There's a, you know, good intentions, if you, if you think that way and feel that way genuinely in your heart, and you could pass a lie detector test that says, I really want that need to be met, and I want that person to thrive. But if you never do anything about it, that good intention is, doesn't amount to much at all. Or... In um, Darius's case, good intentions when mixed with pride, self-exaltation, folly, lack of discernment. If you take good intentions and mix them with all that stuff, it doesn't amount to much, right? I, oh man, I really want Daniel to. I really want Daniel to thrive. But I also love myself, think very highly of myself, only care about myself, only think about myself. And frankly, I'm just stupid and I get outwitted by people that want to manipulate me and, and, and leverage my power and my authority for their ends rather than my own. You can have the best intentions in the world, but that's a recipe for uh, disaster. That's a recipe for people getting hurt or killed. And so good intentions are great. In fact, I would argue that uh, good intentions are integral and necessary for a Christian to thrive, but good intentions in and of themselves are not sufficient. We have to have good intentions like King Darius had, but we also have to have humility and godliness and wisdom and a willingness to listen to wise counselors and discernment to know what to do and when. But all of those things, we have to have good intentions like Darius had, but we also have to have all of those other things like Darius lacked if we want to be faithful Christians. So stone is brought, it's laid on the mouth of the den, the king sealed it with his own signet and with that of uh, the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. And then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him and sleep fled from him. So he's up all night long, no TV, no books, no phone, no video games, no women, no, no company, no entertainment of, of any kind. He's up all night. He's worried. He's sweating. He's freaking out. He doesn't sleep a wink. He's hoping and praying that Daniel's okay. Verse 19, Then at daybreak the king arose, and he went in haste to the den of lions. And as he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king, uh, the king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, has he been able to deliver you from the lions? It's a long shot. Probably didn't happen, but let's hope maybe it did. And then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king. I have done no harm. So just like God sent his angel to save Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace, God sends his angel to save Daniel from the deadly den of lions. Because Daniel was blameless and faithful and righteous. He was a man who acted with integrity and he trusted God even when it was costly, even when it appeared that it was going to cost him his very life. And the king was exceedingly glad, and he commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. And so Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted God. So not even a scratch. Right? Remember chapter 3 with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego says they were brought out, and the, not even a hair on their heads was singed. Uh, their cloaks were not even harmed. Their, 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 they didn't even smell like smoke or fire at all. And so, so the, the, and so, yeah, Daniel's brought out, and there's not even a scratch. There's not even any um, sense of or any ounce of, of no kind of harm was found on him. So, so the, the, the author is going out of his way to say, man, when God saves a person, he doesn't do it, yeah, he doesn't do it by accident. He doesn't do it barely. He do, it's not like, uh, you know, here's the, the, the wrath of, of God and you're, you're saved from it after experiencing some port, like just enough, right? Uh, that, but you don't die, but you, you know, and, and then you're saved after it. He's saying when God saves a person, he saves them entirely, comprehensively, totally. 
God saves them and they don't experience any of the judgment, any of the danger, the harm that was going to befall them. God doesn't save people kind of. He doesn't save people part of the way. Right? Daniel spends an entire night in a cave, a confined area with multiple apex predators that are hungry and that want to eat him and devour him, and he comes out without a scratch on him. Verse 24, the king commanded, and those who had been maliciously accused, those who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and they were cast into the den of lions. So they set this snare, they set this trap, right? We're going to trick the king. We're going to force him to do our bidding and then we're going to laugh in his face about how he can't, he can't get out of it because the law can't be changed and he signed it into, into law. And then, and then Dan, the trap's going to be set for Daniel and he's going to be killed in this violent way. And then those men fall into the very trap that they set for someone else. Proverbs chapter 1 says, There are sinners who run to evil. They make haste to shed blood. And they say, come, let us lie in wait. Let us ambush the innocent. Let us swallow them alive. And then we'll go to their house and we'll, we'll find all of their precious goods and we'll fill our houses with all of their plunder. And Proverbs 1 says, these men are actually lying in wait for their own blood. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. They actually set an ambush for their own lives, not for others. Set a snare for others and you get caught in your own trap, which is exactly what happens. To them, but not just to them, right? King, those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought in, cast in the den of lions. They, their children and their wives were thrown in. And before they reached the bottom, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in, in pieces. Which seems kind of icky. I mean, it, it seems and it is, right? It seems unjust. seems unjust and it is unjust. It seems wrong and it is wrong. But it's, you know, perfect, as best as I could tell from, from doing some, some light reading this week, it's consistent with the practices of the, the, the Persians. They were known for some pretty ruthless, pretty grotesque, pretty over-the-top, pretty cruel and unusual punishments. Manipulate people, or mutilate people, butcher them, suffocate them, stone them, feed them to animals, burn them alive, bury them alive, impale them on spikes. All, I mean, just, just grotesque stuff. And in certain cases, like this one, uh, they wouldn't just do it to the guilty person, but they would do it to that person's entire family. They would reserve that for crimes that they thought were particularly bad, crimes like, in fact, this was mentioned, uh, like lying to the king, was was seen as con, as particularly bad and worthy of the worst punishments that they could that they could mete out. So lying to the king, so yeah, manipulating the king, tricking the king, trying to exert leverage or force over the king so that you can use his authority for your own ends rather than his. That would all kind of fit the bill of this like capital crime in the Persian Empire that would warrant the worst punishment that we can mete out, but not just for you, but also for your your family. The thinking was. For the worst crimes that we could imagine, we really want people to think long and hard before they do them. We, and, you know, if there's someone who is like, fine, do whatever you want to me, I'm not afraid of you, well then, let's, let's also, for the worst crimes we can imagine, we'll do it to the people that you love and see if you still are as indifferent to the punishment that you are about to experience. Or, maybe it, maybe it just gets the family, right? Like, if, if there are crimes that, when you commit it, the punishment, this terrible punishment is visited not just on you, but on your family. That's also going to then kind of incentivize your family to say, hey, don't do that. Like, if you, it's like families will start to police themselves. Families will start to be like, no one, no lepresti is going, like, if you live under my roof, you're not going to do X, Y, and Z, because that's going to not just get you in trouble, but get all of us in, in trouble. And so it was a really gratuitous, really cruel and unusual uh, punishment that they, 
that they practiced in the Persian Empire, but that was the thinking behind it. We reserve it for the worst crimes we can imagine because those deserve this punishment that's so bad it's actually wicked. It's actually sinful to do. It's, it's un, unjust. And so, yeah, they throw the wives and the children into the, the den of lions and they are uh, overpowered and they broke all of their bones into to pieces. And so, you know, some guys have speculated, oh, like, tr- trying to, like, figure out, like, a naturalistic way to read this story and understand it. Like, oh, maybe uh, the, re- the reason why Daniel survived his night in the lion's den is because maybe King Dar- maybe the loophole that King Darius found the night before was he just, like, fed them a bunch of food. Like, maybe he, like, got the animals really full, and then he sent Daniel in, and they weren't hungry anymore. Or maybe he, like, hit them with a, like, a, trank- like a sedative, or, you know, he, like, fi- like they, were, they were passed out or something like that. But that's not true because these, these lions are obviously starving. To, to, they're, they're, they're hungry. And so they throw these other men, these, um, you know, people who maliciously accuse Daniel, they're thrown in and their family, and they're, they are not just bitten, not just mauled, but like overpowered. Their bones are broken in pieces, presumably as the lions just eat them, whole, right? eat them bones and all, right? Like eat, eat them, the, the entirety of, of them. And so, it's not just that, like, I mean, think about it. Like, in, in the ancient world, it's not like today where you've got a digital footprint that follows you everywhere you go. Like, your, your evidence of having existed on the planet in the ancient world was your property, but specifically your property that is going, then going to be passed on to your children. Right? If you, you know, if you have a dozen kids and someone comes and kills you, which wasn't uncommon in the ancient world, then you're dead, but your legacy, right? Then you've got 12 guys that are going to, you know, grow up and tell stories. They've got your name, they've got your property, they've got your legacy, they're telling stories about you for generations to come. But th- this, these men, their bodies are devoured, there's no trace of them, and their families are devoured. There's, like, when the sun went down that night, it was as if they never existed. Yeah, every, every trace that they ever existed in the world, well, I mean, King Darius was not messing around. He's like, this, I, I, this is what I think of this kind of deceit and trickery and manipulation of the, the royal king. I'm going to annihilate you from the face of the planet. It'll be like you never even were, were born. Verse 25, And then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, all nations, languages that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. I, King Darius, I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. Not before me, like my foolish decree said yesterday. I, decree that people are to tremble in fear before the God of of Daniel. And why? Because he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. His dominion shall come to the end. He is the one who delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He is the one who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So Yahweh is the true God, not me. Yahweh is the true King. Not me. I used to think I was the true king. I used to think that I was the one who deserved all of the worship and honor and praise. But now I recognize that I am a, a deputy at best. I am, am a, a, an under-shepherd who has been appointed by the true God, the true king, the one who really has the authority, the one who really rescues, the one who really saves, and the really does Miracles. God is the true God, and I am not. Which represents a departure from the decree. Like, you know, so they spent the whole time saying, here's the decree that he made. It can never be changed. Well, this, it, he changed it. This decree is the exact opposite of the decree that he just said the day before. So, Right, the, the loophole essentially is that no decree from the king can ever be revoked unless the king makes a decree that is unless the king makes a, a different decree that, that contradicts it. 
But no king would ever do that because that's really embarrassing. You lose faith. That's admitting that you were wrong, right? If you make a new decree that overrides the old, that's effectively saying to everyone, this sovereign, glorious God-man that rules over you, that can never be wrong ever, he's never said or done anything that's wrong from birth all the way up until this moment, I made a mistake. And kings didn't do that. So that's why it couldn't be revoked. And that's, he threw Daniel to the lion's den because he thought, I would, I'm tempted to make a different decree. But my pride is such that I can't, like, I'm not, I can't admit that I would rather see Daniel die and then whatever happens, happens, than admit that I'm wrong in front of everyone. But here he says, no, this is so incontrovertible. The sovereignty of God, the glory of God is so undeniable that, yeah, I'm going to admit that I was wrong, and I'm going to make a new decree that says that decree was wrong. It's not something that kings traditionally did in the ancient world. It's, pretty, it's a pretty significant departure from, from the custom. So then Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius the Mede and during the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So we've seen king after king after king after king that Daniel is prospering and thriving and they just think he's the greatest and they want to promote him and they want to make him uh, you know, higher and higher and more powerful in their, their kingdom. Cyrus, interestingly enough, is the last... Cyrus is the guy who says, send Israel back to Jerusalem. So Daniel, pretty much for the entirety of the exile, is, is kind of a, a, an official in the courts of Babylon and Media and Persia. He spends his entire life, I mean, he dies there. So his whole life was spent in the proverbial lion's den, right, under these hostile foreign powers, being faithful to God, trusting in God, being preserved and protected by God, flourishing as a man of God because of his righteousness and his faithfulness and integrity. Daniel's a man who leaves his home on a mission from God, trusts God, sees that mission through to its very end, and then is ultimately vindicated by God. Does that sound familiar? Tell me who this story reminds you of. Who's another man in your Bible who is faithful to God morning, noon, and night, praying to God, even in the face of intense demands, temptation, persecution, who's, who's called the servant of the Lord and serves his God continually? Who's another man who is hated by others, particularly when their evil deeds and their evil hearts are exposed by him, but is loved by those who draw near to him and embrace him? Right, John 7, the world hates me because I expose that its deeds are evil. John 6, Lord, whom will we go to? You alone have the words of internal life. So he's this polarizing Who's the man in your Bible who, because of his holiness, his righteousness, his faithfulness, was conspired against by, by leaders who hate him? They resent him, they're jealous of him, so that they can put him to a violent death. And then those leaders go to the leader above them and they manipulate that man so that they could gain access and use that man's power to kill him since they lack the power and authority to put him to death in and of themselves. John 18, Jesus is brought before Pontius Pilate and he says, what accusation do you bring? And they say, He's guilty. That's all you need to know. Don't worry about the accusation. Don't worry about the evidence. Just trust us. He's guilty. We want you to put him to death. And Pilate says, well, then if you think he's guilty, judge him by your own laws. And they say, we can't judge him by our own laws because our laws won't allow us to put this man to death. We need you to put him to death for us. Here's another man in your Bible who on the verge of his own death, in the very sight of his own death, continues to pray to his father. Right? In the garden, not my will, but your will be done. Another man who's interrupted in the middle of his prayer, 
taken away unjustly, hauled before a corrupt system to stand trial to answer these wicked men for their contrived, unjust charges. Another man who is left to die the most violent, horrific, awful death that you can imagine to be pierced and and broken apart. Another man who, uh, who had other leaders who were sympathetic to him. Joseph of Arimathea was a revered leader, sympathetic to Jesus. Nicodemus was a revered leader, sympathetic to Jesus. John 7, he says, Does our law allow us to judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he's done and hearing what crime he has committed? Another man in your Bible who was placed in a cave and a rock was put over it to seal it shut. His followers go and grieve in the dark night. But then come first thing in the morning at early dawn to open the tomb and see if he is still there. Who's another man who, when his followers come, they are expecting to find a corpse in a tomb, but they find him alive back from the dead? whose victorious resurrection now vindicates him as righteous, the faithful servant of God, who then, proclaim, who then proceeds to declare that God, his heavenly Father, is the true God, the Lord of all, and he institutes his kingdom of righteousness and peace and love, and then his enemies are, are uh, crushed and destroyed. The enemies who persisted in their rebellion of him and rejection of him, the enemies who denied his God of whom he was the living word. Daniel, whose very name means God is my judge, God is my sovereign, is the ultimate picture of that final obedient man, Jesus, who gives his life to save sinners who deserve the lion's den. Jesus is the one that Daniel's life anticipates and points to. Jesus is the one who saves and keeps his people. Jesus is the one to whom we look, and Jesus is the one in whom we trust. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the person and work of Jesus, the faithful servant of God who came to us, died for us as a sacrifice in our place. We thank you that Jesus was thrown into the lion's den of God's wrath for us so that we could be saved and spared from it. We thank you that Jesus was raised from the dead in victory so that we could have salvation and new life, eternal life with you. And Lord, we pray that as we internalize that reality, as we meditate on it, we pray that it would um, convict us, that it would soften our hearts, and that it would then galvanize us and propel us to live new lives that bring glory and honor to your name. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.